I think the main problem at the Bank of England and many commentators, they can't see the wood for the trees. So they tend to, to look at inflation and focus on whichever individual prices are going up or down the most. Mm. The bigger picture, as anybody who sort of studied monetary economics all those decades ago will remember, is that inflation is primarily a monetary phenomenon. And what we've had over the last few years is a massive increase in the amount of money and credit in the economy as a result of interest rates being very low and all the money printing done by the Bank of England. We do need somebody who's willing to go in there and sort of fundamentally reform the way that we deliver public services, the NHS in particular. The British economy outperformed expectations last year. Inflation came down much faster than most analysts were expecting, particularly, of course, the Bank of England. Economic growth was expected to be negative, dropping by 1%, and in fact, it looks like it will have grown by around 0.5%, meaning the UK will have avoided a recession. And employment also remains relatively high. Yet, the outlook does not look entirely positive for the UK economy, with continued low growth, structural weaknesses, and global risks. Welcome back to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the IA's Director of Public Policy and Communications. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question. Today's question is, what are the UK's economic prospects in 2024? I'm excited, of course, to be joined by the IEA's own Julian Jessup. He's our economics fellow, as well as an independent economist and member of the IEA's Shadow Monetary Policy Committee. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. So looking at the macro situation, it looks like the UK has had a relatively successful 12 months and kind of achieved the mythologised soft landing from inflation. That is, inflation has gone down, but we haven't seen a big kind of Phillips level, Phillips curve expected increase in unemployment. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's not often that a single set of economic data can be described as a game changer, but I think the latest set of inflation numbers were. So inflation fell to 3.9% in November. Uh, and I think it's actually well on track now to reach the Bank of England's 2% target by the, the second quarter of this year. And that's really significant because the Bank of England wasn't expecting that to happen until right towards the end of 2025. So it looks like inflation is going to be back on target a full year or more earlier than the bank had expected. And that sort of unleashes all sorts of good news for the economy. And first of all, of course, it means that the squeeze on, on real incomes will be less than it would otherwise have been. It will also allow the, the Bank of England to, to cut interest rates sooner than people have been expecting. Even if the, the bank's rhetoric on that is still quite tough, the markets have started to price this in already. Um, those lower interest rates are good news for the government as well. So that increases the, the fiscal headroom for the Chancellor, so he expects some, some more tax cuts in the, in the March budget. And overall, you know, high inflation has been the biggest single drag on business and consumer confidence. So you know, businesses and households should be more confident spending this year than they would otherwise have been. We'll come back to the tax cuts debate in a moment. Mm. I think you're actually being quite humble here, of course, because so, you were one of the relatively, I suppose, few economists who had a more optimistic outlook for inflation mm. over the last 12 months. I was wondering why perhaps you managed to get it right mm. while the Bank of England with all their, yeah. you know, gazillions of economists and fancy economic models mm. didn't quite seem to get the prediction um, when it came to inflation correct over the last well, period. Well, I think the main problem at the Bank of England and many commentators, they can't see the wood for the trees. So they tend to, to look at inflation and focus on whichever individual prices are going up or down the most mm. at the time and say, you know, that inflation is driven by energy prices or it's being dragged down by food prices, whatever it might be. But the bigger picture, as anybody who sort of studied monetary economics all those decades ago will remember, is that inflation is primarily a monetary phenomenon. And what we've had over the last few years is a massive increase in the amount of money and credit in the economy 
as a result of interest rates being very low and all the money printing done by the Bank of England. So that's what caused the original surge in inflation. More recently, of course, the Bank of England has been raising interest rates and monetary and financial conditions have been a lot tighter. And that's the key reason why inflation has fallen. And also why I think it's likely to keep falling because you know, money and credit growth is now basically zero. That's either consistent with you know, a very deep recession or I think more likely further big falls in inflation and the UK just about skirting recession but only managing weak growth. So the Shadow Monetary Policy Committee, which the IA hosts, a mm. um, group of economists get together and, and give uh, every couple of months and give a kind of alternative opinion to the uh, Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. Uh, you've been calling for a, a cut in interest rates yeah. uh, since... Um, I think around August this year. Yeah. Um, of course, Bank of England didn't listen to your stage advice. They put up interest rates a few more mm. times, um, although the, the, that appears to have ended. I suppose the question now on a lot of people's lips is, um, will the Bank of England be reversing course sooner than previously mm. forecast? Do you think there'll be a, a rate cut in, in the coming months? Yeah, well, in a sense, actually, it doesn't matter because the markets are doing the Bank of England's job for hmm. it. So they've already started to price in big cuts in interest rates over the, over the course of the year. And you're seeing that reflected in, for example, you know, bond markets. So the cost of government borrowing has fallen sharply. The cost of mortgages as well, of course, that, that could have been a real big threat to the economy. And although many people will be paying much higher mortgages than they would otherwise have been, mortgage rates are basically returned to more normal levels. So that's not a massive headwind for the economy as a whole. Um, you're also seeing a, a pickup in, in asset prices. So in the equity market's a bit more comfortable. We seem to have averted a housing market crash. So. Um, as long as the Bank of England doesn't wait too long, I don't think it really matters what they do in the meantime. However, at some point, those expectations in the market do need to be validated, you know, either, either by the Bank of England actually agreeing and cutting interest rates, or by a continued drip feed of better data on inflation. And as I think it, we'll actually get both. Um, it might be too soon to expect the bank to move as early as February, but I think by my April or May, the bank itself will be cutting rates as well. Having a, a look through... Um Earlier today, some of the uh, expectations from the City Economists, mm. um, as well as some of the broad economic commentary. There's a lot of concerns about, I suppose, downside risks, either inflation being a little bit more sticky than uh, you might expect, mm. or something to do uh, with the kind of geopolitical situation. Obviously, there's a lot of um, chat at yeah. the moment about the impact of the, the Houthis uh, disrupting trade in the Red Sea. The, there's been a, a big uptick in the expected costs of container shipping because they're having to go around Africa. That slows everything down a lot. Um, is, is there a potential risk on the other end here where actually inflation is just that little bit more persistent mm. and the economy is a little bit weaker uh, in that respect and therefore the Bank of England might be hesitant, I suppose, to, to cut rates? Mm. Well, I think that, of course, there are always risks, but there are actually risks, I think, in, in, in both directions. I think that the bigger risk this year is actually going to be deflation, you know, given mm. the strength of disinflationary pressures coming from money and credit aggregates. I think that's the bigger risk, particularly also because some of our biggest trading partners, so the Eurozone is already in recession uh, and might drag things down as well. So I think the main risks are actually on the downside. If you look at the upside risks, um, I think they're actually pretty small. I mean, th those of you who want to follow me on, on Twitter, I, I do sort of regular charts of this, and I've been looking very closely at the impact of the disruption to supply chains, partly as a result of what's happening in the, in the Red Sea, but also the Panama Canal. Compared to the disruption over the last couple of years, it, it, it's frankly nothing. It's just a bit of noise on top. Um, the big risk that might have come from the disruption to the Red Sea is oil prices. If, if, if they'd shot up, that would have a quick and immediate effect on 
prices in the UK, particularly petrol prices. But in fact, oil prices have remained subdued and petrol prices have continued to fall. So, so I don't frankly see a, a huge threat there. Um, you're right to mention freight costs, I and mean, they have in some cases roughly doubled already this year. Um, but again, compared to the huge increases we saw during the pandemic, that's actually not a lot. And in order for that to have a sustained impact on inflation, those increases in freight costs need to be sustained as well. I don't think they will be. You know, I think that you know, the Western military will get on top of the problems uh, in the Red Sea um, and that you know, container shipping will return to more normal levels. Even if it doesn't, though, again, I've, I've crunched the numbers, as have others. Um, even you know, what we see now, if it's sustained over the whole year, would only add about 0.5 percentage points to inflation. So given everything else that's going on, that's not going to be a game changer. And of course, there's other kind of talk in recent days about the relatively cold turn in, in European weather, which last mm. year might have seen a lot of panic around gas prices, but the gas futures seem pretty stable, kind of indicating that yeah. we've, we've sorted out the supply yeah. chain issues and there's enough storage and, and there's not about to be a big yeah. um, uptick in energy costs as a result of uh, yeah. some colder weather. And also, because going back to the, the key driver, which is, is monetary policy, mm. Um, just because some prices might be higher than otherwise doesn't necessarily mean that overall inflation is higher. So uh, in the unlikely event we did end up spending a lot more on energy, then that's less money to be spent on other goods and services. So yes, energy inflation might be a little bit higher, but unless there's the fuel there of an increase in the money supply, then that won't necessarily have a big impact on overall inflation. So the news is very good, as, as you've said, on inflation. Now, where, of course, the news isn't so good is when it comes to mm. economic growth, both, mm. both in the immediate term, of course, the UK did better last year than expected, but I wouldn't say 0.5% is mm. a great level of growth. And it certainly isn't a great level of growth when we've had relative stagnation for, um, yeah. I suppose, almost 15 years now. It doesn't seem likely to change in the coming year. I think the forecast from the OBR was something like 0.7% growth next mm. year. And what do you think the, the prospects are on, mm. on the other side of the ledger? Okay, we've got inflation sorted, yeah. but w what about actually, we're not going backwards in terms of living standards, but actually increasing living standards over yeah. the coming year? Well, I think that's the, that's the problem. The, the question I often get asked is, is the UK heading for recession? And the, the usual definition there is two successive quarters of, of negative growth in overall GDP, the overall size of the economy. I think we will avoid that. But if you look at GDP per head, in other words, you adjust for the increase in the size of the population, then we are actually in a, a recession on that definition because GDP per head shrunk both in the second and the third quarters of, of last year. So I think that's the, the way to look at this. In terms of output per head, we're not doing great at all. And you touched also on the, the long-term economic problem that we've had very weak productivity growth basically since the global financial crisis of, of 2008. Uh, and one of my favourite, or if you like, least favourite figures there is that if productivity had continued growing at its pre-crisis trend, then output per head would now be something like 25% higher than it actually is. And if you translate that into, into living standards, then that's, that's a massive hit to the quality of life in this country because productivity in particular has been so weak. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's a bigger economic fact to me as well mm. that the UK, I suppose, per capita income is something like 40% below the US now. Mm. It's not like the US is a little bit richer than the UK. The US is substantially richer than the UK because of that period of stagnation while, while um, the, the US has had all that growth. I'm wondering, how do you turn that ship around? So mm. we're obviously 
heard a lot of so much talk from uh, both parties over yeah. the last 12 months about growth. It, it's certainly something Keir Starmer has highlighted from the opposition and something Rishi is mm. one of his five pledges was to get growth going. What, what is the answer here? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that economists disagree on this. There's <laughs> what we call a productivity puzzle. And there are lots of different potential explanations for the puzzle that lead to lots of potentially different solutions. Um, I think if there is a consensus, it's that we need to invest more in this country. Um, investment, improving the quality of the capital stock, uh, more skills, training, better education and so on, is the key to getting productivity up. Um, there's still a big debate there about who should do that. I mean, some people think it should be, be the government. Um, I obviously think it should be the, the private sector as far as possible. So the emphasis should be on creating the conditions in which businesses want to invest, in which people want to set up new businesses and you know, deliver the sort of cutting edge technology and change that, that we need. And for me, that's mainly about creating that good environment. So that means you know, not just low taxes, but also simple taxes uh, and you know, taxes that are fairly consistent from year to year that aren't constantly chopping and changing. That's something we've been bad at recently, particularly on business taxes. It means having a sort of regulatory regime that allows people to, to build. So that's issues like, like planning reforms and so on. Um, now, I think a lot of that is sort of almost motherhood and apple pie. People, people would agree with it. But if you look at individual policies, there's always somebody who can come up with an objection. You know, they, they don't want a you know, power plant in their constituency or um, they don't want a new housing development in, the, in their back garden. So there's lots of resistance to those sorts of changes. There's also a perception that you know, companies are a sort of magic money tree, that you can always just shake more money out of companies. Um, whereas in fact that we know, you know corporation tax in particular is one of the worst taxes for damaging the economy and deterring investment and, and job creation. So um, a lot of people talk about these things, but in practice it's quite hard to deliver. Yeah, I think the challenge for politicians is to, to do those kind of reforms to, to get the, the economy going again. It seems like there's also some other structural issues um, going on in the economy. One that comes to mind is uh, the, the labour market. So, of course, we're in a situation of relatively, I guess, strong labour market for those who are in it. But, of course, a lot of people have left the labour force yeah. since COVID. Yeah. We've got really huge numbers of people claiming um, disability support payments, mm. uh, as well as kind of other government supports. Um, it seems like there's, there's, a, there's a huge problem there as well when you then add on top of that that over the coming years you've got an ageing population as well. Yeah. So you're going to have fewer people in the workforce and, and more claimants on them. It seems, it seems that there's, there's a big structural squeeze coming on workers mm. and because there's few of them and the government you know, promises so much and people want so much from the state, it's going to be hard to get out of that slight, I suppose, high tax, high spending um, low growth situation that yeah. we've found ourselves in. Yeah, you're right. I mean, productivity is absolutely key. You need to get more out of your existing workforce, but you also need to grow the economy by getting more people back into work. So it's not just about productivity, it's also about participation rates. And there are a number of different things that you need to do there. And it, as ever, it's partly a mix of, of, of carrots and, and sticks. Um, if you think about some of the people who are not in the labour market who could be, then it's people on disability benefits who, who would now be able to work and more should be done to help and encourage them back into work. Um, also, a lot of older people have, have retired earlier than they might otherwise have done, perhaps during COVID, and they need to be tempted back into work. 
Uh, one way of doing that is by making sure that you know, the tax regime works for them. So getting rid of some of the ridiculously high marginal tax rates that some potentially higher earners could face. Um, it's also about making sure that the labour market is as flexible as possible. You know, one of my hobby horses here is that you know, some people are campaigning against zero hours contracts, but actually they're particularly good not only for you know, younger people, students, but also older people who have the option to work or not work who actually quite like the flexibility of zero hours contracts. So you need to make sure you have as wide a variety of different employment options as possible to tempt people back into work. And of course, also to, to make sure that work pays through you know, low taxes in, in particular. So I think that's probably the, the, the key thing, is a mix of carrot and sticks to get everybody who, who wants to work or can work to do so. To get a little bit more controversial, for a lot of people, the issue here is really about immigration. It's that the UK is importing mass numbers of cheap, mm. low productivity workers. And that's why businesses aren't investing properly in boosting productivity and why people aren't coming back into the, the workforce um, at the same rates as mm. might be necessary. Do you, do you buy that kind of an argument? Well, I, I, I'm reasonably relaxed about immigration from a sort of free markets economics point of view. Um, I think you should have free trade as far as possible, and that includes you know, bringing people in to, to fill vacancies and to, to add to your skill sets. Um, but even I actually recognise that there are constraints on the sheer numbers of, of, of people coming in, particularly if many of those people are not actually working. They are the dependents of, of, of workers. So um, I think there are problems there. Um, I wouldn't personally obsess too much about overall numbers. And in particular, I wouldn't you know, artificially try and hit targets by doing things that are silly, like, for example, preventing students from coming here from overseas. And you know, one of our biggest export successes is, is, is you know, is education. So it seems odd to, to close that door. But I do recognise that the sheer numbers are sometimes putting pressure on, on public services that need to be funded, and that's not always possible. So you mentioned uh, the UK's tax situation a, mm. a few times in the discussion already. I think it's this week begins the national insurance cut, and there's been this big debate about whether yeah. or not taxes are actually going up and down, mm -hmm. and a bit, a bit like Schroeder's uh, tax yeah. changes. It's, you, can, you can look at it. It's both alive mm. and dead. They're, they're mm -hmm. both, going, both going up and down, depending on how you look at it. I wonder what, what you make of, of mm. that debate and, and where things are going in terms of the UK's tax burden. Well, okay, I think I'd characterise it sort of five steps back and one step forward. So <laughs> if, if you look at what's happened over the last few years, the, the tax burden has, has increased and it's actually set to increase further, uh, primarily because of you know, what economists call fiscal drag. So the, you know, the, the levels at which you start paying tax have been frozen, even though inflation in, in terms of prices and wages has been strong. So more people will be paying higher rates of, of tax. So the tax burden is going to continue to go up. Um, it will go up less than it would otherwise have done because of the, the cut in national insurance contributions. So that's, that's an important step in the, in the right direction, if we put it like that. But I think a lot more needs to be done. But as I said earlier, because of the lower inflation numbers, the chance will have a bit more room. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if he decides to, to cut income tax in the next budget too. Yeah, it, it seems this is becoming almost politically toxic for the Tories of the recognition of them as the high tax party. The Labour Party's got to calculate now about how much less tax you would be paying if in income tax thresholds went up um, yeah. with inflation. It, it seems like the, the little bonus for government from high inflation is the fact that we're, we're, the, the fiscal drag pushes up everyone's taxes. I mean, what do you think, though, the priority should be for tax cuts, or perhaps even if the priority should be tax cuts, should is, is yeah. should there be more concern about the national debt, which is you know, approaching 100% of GDP, um, rather than all these kind of tax cuts that are now being talked about by 
uh, everyone. Okay, well, I mean, starting with the, the debt numbers, I'm sort of actually fairly relaxed about that. I don't think it really matters whether the debt is 100% of GDP or 105 or, or, or 95. What matters over the longer term is, is whether it's going up or down. Um, and the best way to get debt down over the longer term as a share of national income is to grow national income. So if somebody can make a decent case for, for tax cuts or even spending increases that boost the economy, then I wouldn't worry too much about the short-term impact of that on the, on the debt numbers. The question then is, you know, which taxes do you cut and, or where do you increase spending? And I think we haven't had a brilliant debate about that over <laughs> the last few years. I think for me, the most important thing about tax cuts um, is that they need to improve the performance of the economy in some way. Um, putting more money back in people's pockets is important, but um, there are other things at the moment that are bigger priorities. And I would suggest that's you know, anything that might boost productivity. Now, you can do both. For example, if you put money back into people's pockets and therefore encourage them to, uh, to go back into work, um, or you put money into the hands of companies that then use that to invest, then that can not only boost the demand side of the economy, but also the supply side of the economy as well. But it's important to get that, that mix right. It isn't just about giving money back, even though I think that's important. You want to try and do so in some way that pr proves the underlying performance of the economy as well. The other one there, of course, uh, which doesn't get enough attention is something like stamp duty is a particularly inefficient tax to, that discourages housing transactions and creates a kind of delirious economic impact, a big debt weight loss, I suppose, might be the economic term for it. Yes, so um, stamp duty is a good example of a tax that almost all economists hate because it's basically a tax on transactions. It's actually a tax on economic activity. And it's completely bonkers that the amount of tax you, you might pay on a house over its lifetime will depend on how many times that house changes hands rather than any other key driver of what the economic value of that house is. So economically, it's a, it's a, it's a duff tax and I'd love to get rid of it. Um, I wouldn't necessarily make it my priority. I wouldn't, by the way, make scrapping inheritance tax my, my priority either, but um, I might put them in a manifesto as something that I'd be looking to get rid of in the next parliament. And of course, the other side of ledger here is the spending. So mm. it seems to me that we've had a lot of promises for tax cuts, but the reason why taxes are so high and the remain so high is yeah. because we've got record levels of spending on uh, things like healthcare, for example, in the NHS, mm. which has had a huge boost in spending and not mm. particularly much increase in productivity. There's a lot more need to be done on that side mm. of, of the ledger in order to, to get down taxes and reduce the size yeah. of the state. Well, again, we need a much better debate here. It's, it's often said, you know, do you want tax cuts or do you want increases in public spending? With the implication that if you have tax cuts, it has to be at the cost of, of, of public spending. Um, I think it's far more nuanced than that. You know, tax cuts that boost the economy will create more revenues in the future than you would otherwise have. It's also possible to reduce the size of the state without, for example, cutting individual benefits if you get more people back into work. And the NHS is actually a superb example also of the, the broader problem of productivity. So this is a problem across the whole public sector. Um, private sector productivity growth has been poor since the global financial crisis, but at least it has grown. Whereas on some measures, the private public sector is actually now less productive hmm. than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So lots of more money has been pumped into the NHS in particular, there are more doctors and more nurses, but they're actually often treating fewer people than they were before the pandemic. So there is a big productivity problem in the, in the public sector. I think there's lots of reasons for that. As another podcast potentially in that. Um, but I think the, the, the key point is that there's been you know, a lack of investment, a lack of a, a adoption of new technologies and so on, um, which I think could have the potential to fundamentally transform the way we deliver 
public services. And you know, the the Chancellor, you know, Jeremy Hunt, for his credit, is on this. Actually, funny enough, so is Tony Blair, the former Prime Minister, <laughs> writes thinks a lot about this as well. But um, we do need somebody who's willing to go in there and sort of fundamentally reform the way that we deliver public services, the NHS in particular. Is that, though, something that's, in my mind, a bit aspirational in the sense that politicians will also always often talk about technological solutions and, and undoubtedly there they could be some improvement that could come to mm. public sector productivity by adopting AI in mm. healthcare. But it seems like there's, you need kind of more fundamental institutional reform to change the incentives within the system so that the technology is used successfully um, yeah. and, and productively. You actually need things like competition and markets yeah. within the public sector as yeah. much as possible. No, I, I, well, I absolutely agree with that. If you look at you know, some of the services that are provided by the, by the private sector um, in the market economy, you have seen big increases in productivity in those sectors. And I think fundamentally that's because of competition. So you know, people are competing in areas like recruitment consultancy, for example. Um, so that service has become much more efficient than it was before. Um, but that's not happening in the NHS because there, there's no competition. Yeah, it seemed to me, uh, West Street went to Singapore recently and, mm. and had a look at the healthcare system and came back with what I thought was almost like a, sh a shallow analysis. He said, they have a really great computer system mm. and, and they're much, they have much better technology than us. And I think that's undoubtedly true. Yeah. But it seems to me that's almost like a... a, a it's almost like a, a symptom of a structurally better healthcare system that involves yeah. competition and patient choice and, and different demands on it, yeah. rather than something necessarily as an end in itself, as if we could just yeah. adopt the Singapore's IT system and everything would be grand. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of things that are fundamentally wrong with the, the NHS. And one, people think, one thing people often say is that only if we had a, you know, a better government that would pour more money in, sort of begs the question, why have you got a model for such an important public service that depends on the right party <laughs> being in power? I mean, there, there are fundamental problems with, with that as a, as a model. So, yes, I, I, I think the, the NHS needs, needs root and, and branch reform. It needs, needs more competition. It, it does need more private sector involvement, whether that's through financing or provision of services. That's not, that's not inconsistent with you know, pr you know, universal health care. You know, free at the point of use. It's about how you fund and deliver those services. Um, but if we look at the more successful models, as you say, in Asia, but also in the rest of Europe, they have much higher levels of public sector, sorry, private sector involvement and competition than we do in the NHS. Well, of course, we have poured loads of money in the NHS, and we haven't necessarily, as you've said, productivity's probably gone backwards. And yeah, I mean, if you look at our, our, our spending as a share of GDP for the NHS, it, 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 it's towards the top of the table. Well, we could, I'm sure, go on about mm. this all day long and uh, mm. we'll save some, some of uh, public mm. sector reform thoughts for a, a future podcast. It's been an absolutely fascinating look at, at the year ahead for the UK economy. Some, some good news and, and some bad news as well. Julian Jessup, who is the IEA's Economics Fellow. If you are enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe in your chosen podcast provider. Uh, and if you'd like to learn more about the IEA and follow our work, just visit iea.org.uk.